Sunny 16 presents. Welcome to episode 8 of On Film. For this episode, we talk to the photographer and filmmaker Brian Griffin about his surreal short films, his music videos for bands such as Pansonic and Depeche Mode, as well as hearing about his latest book, Black Country Dada. So, welcome Brian, it's lovely to have you on the podcast, how are you? I'm very well, thank you Claire. Very well indeed. It's great to have you here. Um, Brian, I was interested. Um, it says, I've read that between, was it, am I right, 1991, um, you sort of stepped away from photography and moved into filmmaking um, till about 2002. Can you tell us the reasons for that, for your transition into filmmaking? It's a very, very hedonistic or very um, oh, narcissistic or all the wrong reasons, I'm, but I'm going to own up to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason is that I thought I could walk on water, basically. I was almost uh, like I, I'd been given the freedom of the city of R. I'd got the front cover of Life magazine as the, the of the greatest photographs of the 80s. I was um, the Guardian's choice for the photographer of the decade. That's the eighties. Mm. I was. Uh, I I got the um, the best photographic book in the world at the Barcelona Primavera by with work rather, and uh, not only that. Um, God, I got so many awards. Anyway, I, yeah, I know. I a, a, a sort of national portrait gallery one man show. So I thought, what else can I get, you know, to, I, 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 I'll be a film director. And I locked all my cameras away. I gave the whole studio photographic equipment to the Metropolitan University, which was John Cass at the time, uh, to my friend Mick Williamson, who ran the course there. I gave the students, they still have a little bit of my uh, – my equipment still at the university. I gave them the flash. The, they they stripped the whole of my photographic studio. I just gave it all away. Locked the cameras in the um, in this steel cupboard that I had there. Um, mm-hmm. This safe, I call it my safe, and never touched them again. You know, for ten years, um, I decided to. Re- you know, I got to concentrate on film. People wanted me to take. <coughs> to do photography, you know, still after that point in time. and But I said, no, I'm not doing any photography again, you know. So you I'm were just... turning jobs, were you turning work down then? For, oh, still, God, yeah. still work to focus Boring on your in. films? You were pouring in, yeah. Um, I mean, you've made, you've made, and people can see them on your, on your website, you've made music videos and you've made your own short films as well. And much mm. like your, to me, much like your um photographic still work your your films i think are wonderfully um idiosyncratic they're wonderfully surreal as well and i really love um 
one I'm thinking of, the black and white film Claustrophobia, <laughs> um, which I think it, it is just great. And I love the description where it's about, is it a man um, stricken with grief and remorse who Correct. kind of prepares himself um, to the eighth degree and then visits his um, late father in a in a landscape full of white creatures? And I thought, how do you how do you arrive at it's a it's a wonderful description. So, how, where do you get your ideas from, Brian? And you know, your kind of process. Uh, I think um, one of my, the main areas of my ideas are emotion, really, how I feel about what is happening to me. I mean, I, everything horrible has happened to me in my life. Mm -hmm. Everything wonderful has happened to me in my life. But I tend to be drawn towards, can we say, the most heartfelt things around in my life. Yeah. And that was the loss of my father. Okay. It's about the loss of my father and the fact that I was not in England to see him pass away. And uh, he got his sister, who was at his bedside. He had lung cancer. He didn't smoke or anything. Mm. He was just killed by the factory, basically. And um, he had lung cancer, and he was going to die within a couple of days, really. So he asked his sister to get in touch with me. I was in America doing a massive, massive advertising job for Sarchi and Sarchi, going all over America. Um, and he would have bankrupted me if I had, um, like, had not done the job. You know, if I saw yeah. some bankruptcy or going back to see my father die. Fortunately, I mean, I thought, I, I mean, I was earning so much money, really. I could have flown back by Concord, maybe, and... Um, whatever to see him die and uh, he phoned well his sister phoned me up she's no longer alive she's the, my late aunt yeah uh, else and um she phoned me up and she said your father has asked me to tell you that uh your work is more important than to see me die so that was pretty heavy and of course when i came back home my father was just a pile of earth in, in, in the graveyard and my wife, etc. at the time, yeah. uh, some of my friends were really aghast at me, were really annoyed and like really, oh, they thought, how could I possibly do that? Not come back and see your father, you know. But anyway, I did it and I tried to tried to liberate myself from this intense guilt yeah. uh, that I had. And I used two methods. One was um, a night in all in a, a performance I, I, I put together in R where I died as a sunflower, believe it or not. <laughs> and it was in front of about two or 3,000 people in this amphitheater, Roman amphitheater in R. And uh, I, I, I literally took instruction from a, a mime artist for a couple of days before, before the performance mm -hmm. and taught me how to die, and, uh, which I know is a really strange thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I died as a sunflower, uh, like I had this big headdress on, which was a mm. sunflower headdress. And I died um, in front of people. I don't know what they made of it. I had this industrial, I, put, I had this massive industrial cacophony of of sound, which was basically Einstein's Neubarten, whatever, Einstein's sound, uh, Einstein Neubarten, a German um, industrial band that used uh, metal, beating mm. of 
probably he probably might know them and on the uh, played extremely loud and uh, then i pleaded for forgiveness from i made a sound poem which i pre-recorded um of all the people who uh, i was asking forgiveness for not coming back to see my father okay. which was like a whole a whole set of names of deep uh, close friends of uh, family and they were like sort of uh, I, I can say your name like say it was claire for instance mm. it was like yeah or something <laughs> like that you know like a real sound poem and uh, then i was going to come back after i died as a sunflower the lights would go out and i would come back on stage as um singing marvin Gaye's from what's going on his great album, an anti-war album, and what's going on. I've mm. seen a song from that. And uh, I was just about to come on, and uh, all, the, all the lights in that part of all fused. You know, they all, they all went black holes at that point in time. Just as I was just about to go back on the stage, oh. it completely went black. So that was one process to get rid of this guilt. And the second process was I made a film of where this man, this man was... Uh, I, I, two awful things were happening to me. I was really not terribly happy with my wife, actually. Mm. She was, like, uh, horribly horrified at my attitude towards being back there when my father was passing away. And I didn't like her anyway. I had a really intense dislike for her. So she plays the woman that comes into into the room. Eating the cob. Eating the cob, yeah. Yeah, I love that. So, yeah. <laughs> Mm. So, I mean, that's a very sexual, mm. very sexual uh, moment. The cob is like a sexual symbolism. Mm. And she's almost like, you talk about David Lynch. Yeah. He's almost like the woman behind the radiator in Lynch, really, sort of, quite. Yeah, yeah. She gives, like, she tells me that, you know, I, I can't believe that you didn't come back. She's like, you know, that you didn't come back to see your dad. Mm. And then she goes away. And then I um, prepare myself immaculately, completely. You know, I do everything to make myself absolutely cleansed to be like, a, I don't know, the ultimate bathroom sequence it is in a way, you know, it's to, to make myself perfect with iron, freshly ironed shirt and everything to go and visit my father. Now, this is where it gets rather surreal. The, the middle of the film is just, he, he, it's in rather high, actually. And mm. a man, the film is opened by a man who worked in the local betting office in, in Rotherhithe. And he said, Brian, if, if you ever make a film, because I was doing film then, yeah. if you ever make a film, I want to be in it. So and I remembered that. He went mm. in the local pub and he worked in the local betting office. And, uh, and I got him to open the the, the, the the opening sequence of the film, I hear a new world. you remember that sequence? Yes. Ooh, yeah. It's taken from a, a really strange record. Um, oh, forgotten it. Uh, that the producer in the in the in the fifties and the sixties, uh, Joe 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 Meek, a Joe Meek piece of really strange music. Um, <clears throat> it's um, and that that he, he, he mimes it. You know, we play mm. the record, and he mimes that track at the beginning. And where the title comes up, and then, anyway, a, a, a third of the way through the film or half, he moves, he moves outdoors. He goes yeah. on a journey through Rotherhithe, 
and he does strange things, um, normal things, everyday things, a man possessed uh, in his own thoughts. Um, he's going to go and find his father and, and, mm. and, and say to you, I'm terribly sorry, Dad, I wasn't there in your death. And he comes across lots of albino animals for some reason. That is the surreal part. I don't quite understand what made me think of all albino animals, like a pig, for instance. And then he gets underneath this railway arch. It's an old railway arch down here in Rotherhithe. And, uh, and there's like a door, a door, he's confronted by a door. And on top of two plinths, one either side, side of him, uh, are, are, are sitting on top of them are guardians. And the guardians are like turkeys, two white turkeys. <laughs> Sitting side by uh, at each plinth inside the door, the two turkeys sit, and uh, then he he goes inside um, like a sarcophagus, mm. or and it's all frozen. It's a frozen waste, actually. It's like all ice. It's like a tunnel amongst ice, cold. And a journey he going down these like uh, I don't know what you could call it. Really, it's almost the throat, isn't it? Like a yeah, you know, and he goes down it. And he, and, and he puts a condom on. He puts on a condom because he doesn't want to – I don't know why he put a condom on. I, I think it's either because he doesn't want to pollute his dad or he doesn't want – I don't know. That's a hard one to understand. And then he finds his father, and his father is Father Christmas. Yes. <laughs> and he's got a Botticelli beard, like a massive Botticelli beard. And uh, he sits on it on his knee, which is almost an homosexual thing, but it really isn't in, in a way because he's sitting on the knee of his father, and um, and he just finds peace actually. Uh, I all, I, I uh, made all this. I was really into sound. It's a silent movie, by the way, apart from the soundtrack mm. and, um, and sound effects. But I, I wanted to get really into sounds, and I. I uh, made. Uh, I went into a studio, you know, to create everything mm -hmm. from shaving and the shaving of a beard and the scissor clips. And what side of the finger clipping the, the, the thing? When he, you know, the bit where he he's clipping his nails with the scissors, yeah. and then he clips his hair, doesn't he? Clips his hair, hair, yeah. Clips his little hair, a little bit of hair. Um, why he did that, I have no idea why I was in that sort of state of mind. I shot that all on 35mm film. I was making film at the time, and I used the lighting cameraman that I, I worked with quite often. Mm -hmm. came in from America that shot that film. Um, and uh, it was quite an and it won the, the, the it won the the, the, the what's it called the golden monkey of mons the mons international short film festival mm. won the golden monkey there's a top short film yeah i think it's wonderfully surreal so you i was going to ask you whether you were on the cat you did the camera work so you were you were obviously directing it all and you scripted it all but you weren't on the camera uh, no. no and well it is wonderfully surreal and i love the scene as well um where he's lying he's he's lying in the field and it's the white mouse you know the little white oh, mouse yeah, burns I up i love that and and the ending if he done it looks like some of it's almost like a double it's not a double exposure i don't know how you do it in the yeah. like a like a blending yeah. yeah i think it's 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 wonderfully surreal um and also the the film curl as well which 
Oh, that's another thing. Can you want me to give you a resume of that or whatever? Yeah, which, well, I mean, for listeners, you describe that as is a gentleman who's uh, in a hairdresser's and he, he's drift, he, he drifts off into a dream as he's eating a biscuit. And I thought, how do you, you know, how did you come up with that one? I mean, the other one's very, obviously very emotional, actually. Um, so, so, yeah, give us a bit of an overview of Curl. Uh, well, Curl, again, was shot in 35mm. I mean, mm. films, I was doing, uh, I was doing um, commercials at that time and, and I could afford to spend, I mean, like, claustrophobia cost 35000 Wow. Then. Yeah. So it's a proper job, really. Yeah, yeah. And also the Curl cost 30000 I think. Yeah, wow. Um, sort of, um, and... Uh, it was shot. I mean, the, the first film, *Crossophobia*, was shot in an old, uh, old deserted factory that was used for pop promos and things in Rotherhithe. The second film begins in Andrew Ose's downstairs, down in his. Uh, he's a, he was a friend at the time. It's a hairdresser's, an expensive hairdresser's, mm. um, in Charlotte Street, London. Andrew Ose is still there on the corner, bottom corner of uh, of Charlotte Street. And Andrew Ose happened to be a friend at the time. And I, I, I peeped through the window and I see that he still works there. He's still there. Um, and uh, you go down in there and then the the hairdresser is, um, is chewing gum, actually. There's nothing worse than chewing gum. <laughs> I mean, it's all sound effects. I mean, it's all done in the – I forgot what it's called now. Damn it, I lost one thing. When you record them, you know, everything like my – Beautifully, uh, you know, uh, not on the set, but you, you know, like a a field recording or something. Yeah, like that. Like it's all done like amazingly, mm. incredible sounds. It's incredible sound in both films, and uh, and it's a scene down there. And what happens? He, he he's getting his hair cut, and believe it or not, he's wearing a toupee. Oh, so, right. I like the act, the actor. He's a wonderful actor, and uh, I had to find a toupee to cover his bald head. <laughs> and uh, I went into the wig, because you already heard about Santa Claus, the massive wig. Well, mm -hmm. I got into the same wig suppliers and asked them for a toupee, and they said they've got the perfect colour to match the size of the toupee. Carl mm -hmm. uh, I think, was the actor. And it was the pet shop boys had left that uh, toupee, because one of them was bald and he used the toupee on stage, you know. Yeah. So I used that pet shop boy's uh, toupee. <laughs> and uh, there's lots of sequences. He eats a biscuit and the camera slowly goes into his head and he uh, he's in like a reverie almost. He's like mm. really enjoying, it's almost like a massage really, being in the hairdressers. There's lots of people watching him, watching him have his hair cut and everything. And... Um, and what we what we got was like it's a little tube that runs under the toupee. It's very important to have the toupee actually, in a way, because there's a small tube where an invisible thread is mm. threaded through that tube. So we, you can puppeteer the curl on the front that's on the front of his head. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you can decide puppeteers to puppeteer it, and um, he he dreams and he's because he's looking out from the mirror to all the people that are 
that are watching him get his hair cut because they're waiting for their turn, you know, like a barber shop. Uh, they all appear in the film. And uh, he he is, uh, uh, let me just think about it, because I haven't seen it for a long time, actually. And then he he goes outside, and he's, he, what, he was, it's his place in um, near Luton, actually, which someone knew about this road. It's a fantastic, lonely road that leads up on top of it towards the top of a hill. And he goes out, and there's this strange military uh, pedestal, like with like a weird cone on top of it. Mm. That was almost Second World War, and it doesn't function anymore, but it's been left there for like 40 years, 50 years, or whatever it is, more, you know, just there on the top of this hill. Um, he, um, he, again, it's like, it's a story about, not really, not really liking your wife very much, really. I mean, it's a horrible thing to say. But at that time, I was going through a, a heavy divorce, really. Okay, yeah. So it's all emotional. All, all filmmaking can be emotional or not. And, and I felt quite emotional at the time, obviously. And uh, and I, I'm walking up this alone, which is the guy in the the guy in the hairdressers. He's walking up this this, this hill. And he's um, he's uh, he's got a curl, you know, in, on his forehead, and it's a symbol of of I think again it's a sexual symbol basically for a man. Mm. It's a man with a, a, a flaccid, you know, a member, and then it becomes rather erect, you know. Mm. Curl. It's a sexual symbol, and it's all puppeteered, and uh, every time he goes and he approaches this this um, this figure this this ob obelisk on, on the road his curl moves <laughs> and he feels it move and he can't understand why it's moving and he he just completely he just got to get past that object without his curl on the front of his head moving and he it just constantly you know, moves. So he tries everything. He crawls across the ground. He, 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 he all, on all fours across the ground. He does everything to try and for it not to move. And uh, as this bicyclist, you know, a very boring bicyclist who was actually in the in the um, barber shop, who does these weird exercises, and you hear these massive diesel trains going across a bridge very nearby make a shattering sound uh, as he's uh, you know, constantly through the film and also because he's doing these weird exercises. They, uh, I can't explain them. They've, you've mm. got to see it. And he jumps on his bicycle. But then he, then he, he, he goes to pick his wife up, the, uh, I think, isn't it? The man, mm. the man with the curl goes to pick his wife up and she's really horrible. I mean, she's really, really a horrible person. You, I mean, I, I did everything to make her look horrible. And <laughs> sorry well, about that. I thought, again, the, the shot of the, the lady outside um, looked like a character from just from, from, another, from another world, like from another world. It, the whole thing is just so, so surreal. Yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, and then... 
Yeah, I used a lot of techniques from because uh, I'm very fond of silent movies. I was going to uh, say that because um, I, I noticed what you were saying about your use of sounds, and I, th I thought I like your use of um, your sounds or your field recordings in your films, the bits of music. Um, and yeah, I think uh, particularly, I think some of your um, music videos, which maybe we'll talk about shortly. Um, I felt like I could see um, an influence from from silent films, and then mm. you just said that you like si silent silent movies. Do you do you did you storyboard all your films, Brian? You know, for, did you like storyboard yeah, each scene? Or... I did, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a proper professional job, you mm. know. I mean, uh, I, I, I co-owned a production company at the time for both of those films. And uh, it was in the West End, the production company. It was relative, a relatively large size. We had a number of directors and things, and I could use the 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 the, the, the brains of that production company, i.e., the producers, yeah. assistants, and that. And I could use the people that we use for commercials, etc. Mm. You know? And therefore, they worked. Can we say for the cheapest fees possible? Because yeah. we gave them a lot of work on the commercials. Yeah, it enabled me to shoot these films, which went on for a few days. Actually, I mean, they were gone for four days or whatever. Um, as I said, there were average of thirty to thirty-five thousand, which is quite a lot of money now. Yeah, yeah. Short films, but that's uh, twenty, thirty years ago. Those yeah. Films. And, and and just on that point, so from from the idea in your head to the to, so sort of from the the pre production, the production, mm. the post production, how long would what say one film take, Brian, to be complete? Well, I would have thought the shooting it was all on, on film. Obviously, we all yeah. shot everything. Yeah. Nothing was digital. Um, and then, of course, it would be uh, it would be taken to a, a top editor, yeah. and put it into his avid. Um, it would be digitised, put it into his avid, all the all the takes and whatever. Um, it would take a couple of days editing, and maybe four four days, um, five four to five days shooting, and then it would take like a pre chat, a pre chat, you know, to the main. Yeah people involved i was a lighting cameraman on the curl okay uh but i wasn't on claustrophobia mm. um and uh we chat to the crew and everything prior to the shoot uh and yeah that that and then obviously would be um printed after that um i mean no, I mean, I'm very long, really. I mean, no. As far as commercials concerned, it was like no time at all, which I mean, can be for weeks. Sorry, you're. I'm just think picking up from what you said there about well, two things. Your first of all, were you, would you sit in the edit with the editor, or would yeah. they do a rough cut? You, you'd be in the edit, yeah. Oh yeah. Um, the um, your lighting. I mean, your to me, you're you're like the lighting. <laughs> master sort of thing and what I, I i when we spoke before um i was really taken you were talking about how you made you even invented light machines and built your own light machines and i think how you like your photographic work um is very unique and, and that i can you can see that in your films as well and i'm thinking as well as a film that predates these two which is the, your the life of brian 
which I like as well, which where you star in, you're in it. Um, yeah. And you, 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 in that film as well, it shows you um, with, a, you know, lighting scenes and, and stuff. And that brings me to another thing as well, because as you were saying earlier about your performance as the sunflower in, in R, yeah. um, you you do perform, don't you? Because another one of your films is The Water People. You're acting in that, aren't you? Yeah. Um, and again, that's quite surreal. It's almost like you're in Victorian, Victorian costumes. Well, of course, I, I, it was inspired by uh, Journey to the Centre of the Earth, you see that. Um, I mean, I, I, I wanted, I had a very, very ambitious project for Iceland. Oh, right. Uh, but I couldn't fulfil it. Um, I fulfilled it with one photograph in The Water People. Do you want me to tell people what this is about, The Water yes. People? Yes, yeah, definitely. Um, the Water People, it was a book that was badly received, very badly, and it didn't deserve that bad reception. In Iceland, they hated it. Uh, it was Icelandically funded and Icelandically printed. Um, I never really got in it. I mean, I just got, like, bad vibes about it. Mm. I, I don't I, it's just terrible. Even for in England, I didn't get great, great reception. Although it was an exhibition, a beautiful exhibition. Um, and uh, what happens is the Journey to the Centre of the Earth was, uh, you know, the, the professor and his nephew go down into the centre of the earth. And they go down into the centre of the earth from, um, from Snifelsnes Glacier. They go down a volcano on the mm. Snifelsnes Peninsula. And they come up in uh, Stromboli, just off Italy, in the book. Yeah. One photograph that looked like under the earth in that project, but uh, I, I go astray with that because therefore I must talk to you about it. What it is, is that I invented uh, a machine. I invented the machine in um, 80, I can't remember, mid 80s, early yeah. 80s, mid 80s, called the water machine. The water machine is, is basically a big plate of glass mm -hmm. um, that one looks through when, you, when your friends are, are, are playing outside and it's pouring with rain and the rain's coming down the window and you're a little boy and you look out of your, your window and it's all raining and it's horrible. But anyway, um, it's called the water machine. And what, what this machine is, it's a big plate of glass that you put water on and then you can angle the plate of glass so it can be, can we say, uh, like a, a real angle to the camera or a vertical angle to the camera. And it sits on a, on a, on a plinth where the water ca catches the water that runs down and then you can recycle the water and use mm -hmm. it again. You decide on how to sprinkle the water, whether you want to fire it with a plant, like a plant spray that you pump or one that hand mm -hmm. That squirts. You can uh, decide whether to put a coke bottle full of water, or whether to splash the water, or, or pour the water, or whatever. Uh, uh, the reason I say that it, it took a tremendous amount of experiment and how to get the water effects. But anyway, the water effects are based on the fact that the camera faces the piece of glass, and the other side of the glass is a, a person, a subject, yeah. and uh, the subject. Yeah, obviously the water goes down the glass, which is between the camera and the subject. And then behind the subject is um, is um, available a, a, a tungsten light. So that's yeah. tungsten 
on the subject as flash and uh, the, the flash goes off on the on the subject but the tungsten's still working and the, the exposure is quite long although the flash happens in a thousandth of a second the okay. tungsten takes about four seconds because you've got to you've, you've put the camera down to a very large depth of field a very small or large aperture mm. it's got a maximum depth of field so you don't get too much out of focus with the water in the subject but it, it takes a long time and every droplet of water every movement of water has got like a little lens if you look at water on a glass or something it sort of picks up like uh, light from the side it puts a little hot spot on the water droplet so yeah. the water droplet when it's got four seconds it's still working on eroding the picture you've captured in flash because flash went off really quick froze everything mm. you know Mm. The water droplets, and then the background comes in at the correct exposure. Uh, these people uh, were the water people. I um, so we took portraits of those people, and what we did, we, we there's this geodesic dome which becomes the spaceship. Yeah, so I did. I, I invented this project where this where this old old uh, man, you know, he's Professor Lubok or whatever in the, in the book. <laughs> And his nephew um, is my assistant, and then we fly in this geodesic dome, which actually sits on top of the the, the in the Icelandic power stations when they let off the off the steam that comes from below the earth, that's heated up by the magma which lies deep in the earth, comes up in a ferocious ferocious uh, power. But the top of the valves that control that and keep it locked down unless they let it off. It's like a geodesic dome, like a Buckminster mm. Fuller geodesic dome. Mm. And that's the spaceship we fly in. And it creates, I mean, the, 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 the steam coming up creates like like rain and everything that falls and creates wonderful effects. So we fly across Iceland. My, my partner's uh, father, um, this is after I got, <laughs> after I got divorced, um, after my partner's father was a captain on Icelandic air and he's in charge of the uh, of the spaceship and we get a real hostess from Iceland air as well to be the hostess on the, mm. on the spaceship and we fly to to a, a, where we know the water people live which is deep in Iceland and we get out, get out of the geodesic dome or, or the spaceship and we walk across uh, Iceland, a small walk across Iceland, and we come to the city of the water people. And there we've, we meet the water people, all the different water people. And they're a combination of uh, various characters in Iceland, like uh, a playwright, uh, like uh, um, 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 uh, Björk's mother, Björk's mom was on there, in there. Yeah. and all these water people. And you have a set of portraits, you know, and then we fly back. Uh, but I made a film where my daughter was the stylist and um, and I was uh, the aged professor of the, in the 19th <laughs> century and my assistant, Dylan, is like uh, his nephew, you know, uh, from that period, yeah. That was great. And you, you sort of fly into the future almost and then you you see the people with the, you're like dressed in Victoriana, aren't you? And you fly yeah. in, and they've got their identity tags, and that almost like the the, the stylish um, portraits that you, that you, that you take. Um, again, wonderfully surreal. But you know, you you act as well, don't you? And you perform. And yeah. I've seen other videos of you with your performance of it. Is it like the the the, the big tie? 
Um, that's another one. Oh God. <laughs> you make me sound as if I've done a hell of a lot, actually. So you have. You have yeah. done a lot, Brian. Yeah. And um, it, it, it's all kind of like you, you've got quite a, sing, a singular vision. And um, with your music videos as well, I was thinking, um, I love the one you worked with Panasonic. Um, yeah. How did that, first of all, how did that come about? And then the, the video for Endless, with, with um, which has got Alan Vega in it as well, it's a great video. I mean, I love that video. I mean, how I thought of that one. Uh, I mean, what I had in, in, with that, it, it, it's a, a deserted office building in, in a part of London called Wormwood Scrubs near the, near the prison. Mm. It was deserted and you were so fortunate. You, if you really work on something, I mean, the doors in that film, are, are, are like uh, are named after um, impressionist painters, I think. Mm. That was by sheer luck, um, deserted office building. And um, I knew Panasonic because they were on Blast First Records. Yeah. I'd done a, um, which is part, was part of Mute, Blast yeah. One. And they're from fin Taku in Finland. Uh, I love their work. They sort of like, manipulate electricity almost i mean these sounds mm -hmm. they create through these resistors and stuff anyway um they were terribly on over on the day as most fins are <laughs> they, they worse than me at drinking i mean incredible um and um then i had a light a lighting cameraman on that i met i i was doing commercials in the 90s as i mentioned earlier and I saw a film by, by a French director called Bertrand Tavanier. Mm. Bertrand Tavanier had done a film about Dexter Gordon. I mm. think it's in Lyon, actually, in France, a saxophone player, a great mm. film in black and white. And I love the lighting of it, the, the man who lit it. Yeah. And the man who lit it was a, a, a Dutchman called Bruno de Kaiser. Mm. And I wanted to work with Bruno de Kaiser. He had a feel for light. He just mm. had a unique feel. That I, he had a feeling that I didn't have. I had my own feeling, but he had something different to that. And I wanted to have that in in my in with Alan Vega. I mean, mm. uh, Suicide and my like um, they're my heroes. Or I mean, Alan's mm. no longer with us, but. They're incredible. And I, I saw him possess. It's really strange because I'd met Alan Vega and Marty Rev of Suicide oh, nice. two or three times. Um, Alan is in this particular film. He yeah. almost occupies, uh, it's really horrible, isn't it, say, but he occupies a space in heaven almost. You don't mm -hmm. know where he He's not actually in the environment that the film's made in. Yeah. He doesn't actually appear in the same place. It's strange that he died not too long afterwards, and he's up in that like like he's in heaven looking down. And um, they they are frozen in the film. They are completely frozen. Um, um, Mika, unfortunately, is no longer with us, and Ipo, Ilpo is actually. Um, they just are frozen. They're like completely not moving. And they, I think I made that up at the time because they were so hungover. I didn't want to <laughs> exhaust them, you know. But it's got it's, such an atmosphere, yeah. though. It, the, the, like you say, the lighting, the, it, it, it's really atmospheric. I mean, I love the, the long, the way the camera moves down those long, empty, empty corridors. 
and across the the tables and stuff and I'm trying to think how you how that was done was it long was it like just long plans and, and was it slowed down in the edit or something well, you know it really is two good points there mm. too was obviously the rooms are all named after impressionist painters mm. but I had a great camera a camera operator mm. Martin Foley who was like it's so gentle so lovely the cameras have such a lovely feel to it isn't it oh, feel yeah. Mm. And Bruno had lit oh, that corridor fantastically, and the life coming into it. It's not exaggerated, but it's just lovely touch. And he lit all the rooms as well. You know, they were all deserted rooms, uh, all of them. And uh, it, it just, I don't know, the whole feel of that. And then you see, and then the camera pans across the table, and then in the distance, you see. You see uh, cars on the streets below, right. their headlights on going, and, that, and that's a lovely, such a great feeling. I love that bit where you catch the outside windows with just the cars coming. Mm, mm. Beautiful sequence. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a lovely video. I, I think it's superb. But you did another one with them as well, didn't you? Pansonic. I did. I, I, the first one I did with them was down in uh, uh, the refuse um, disposal plant, uh, just off um, off the Old Kent Road. Yeah. Um, where is this? They wanted. Um, I tell you what. The reason for that because Blast First had seen a script I'd got. I got a script with a cone dog. A dog. Mm -hmm. That's where a cone. And they wanted that, well, Blast First it, it itself uh, that um, wanted that as part of the film. And uh, they're, they're, they're just doing their stuff, uh, Panasonic. It's much, much simpler. They're doing their stuff. And um, I operated the camera then, and um, along with the camera operator, uh, they, they, um, they're watching this dog outside, aren't they? They're mm, monitoring mm. closed-circuit television monitors, this cone dog that's trying to get to them, you know what I mean? I, I, I mean, I don't know what else to say. But I could see echoes in that video of your some of your still work as well, you know, right. still work in, in that video. I think it's, it's yeah, really love those videos. And, of course, um, you had a, you know, you've done a lot of work with um, Depeche Mode, mm. Um only when I lose myself. Only when I lose myself. And of course, you know, you've got your the famous um, Broken Frame album cover. Um, so, yeah, Only When I Lose Myself, that's it's a great video. Um, was that good fun to make? And coming up yeah. with, like, you know, how did you... I never had so much money in my life to make a film. I had <laughs> £125,000 or something to make that film. Oh, fantastic. Which was extraordinary. Um, but it involved quite a lot. Um, it was over in Los Angeles to start with. And uh, I got a casting director. I said to the casting director, I want the weirdest, weirdest set of people in the whole of LA, which is like giving a gift horse in the mouth, looking at a gift horse in the mouth. I mean, it's, I, I could find the weirdest just walking down the street. I want you to find the weirdest people. And I want... I want the the most of the men to 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 perform as women. Oh right, okay. Women. 
So but most of the men in the, in that in, in the film are women. And um, got these weird, and then I wanted to find a skunk works, a Lockheed skunk works. Skunk works were a place where uh, I thought, I mean, remembering back, where can we say secret, um, secret, not weapons, secret things were made. I don't know, for the government. That's all I can explain. I don't, I'd have to look it up exactly. So it's the Lockheed skunk works. I mean, do you get for for both this video and your other ones? Do you did you get complete free reign to come up with something to for that song, or was there like a collaborative process? Did you get like a steer? Did to me, which is okay. brilliant. I mean, they were brilliant for me to work with Depeche Mode. They're wonderful clients because I, I did some very successful album covers yeah, for them yeah. in their career. And I did a successful video. I mean, I mean, the Depeche Mode fans are clambering to hear me talk about that film. Um, they were what they were. They were they were brought to life again. They were a set of people all the way through the film that were brought to life that had died in their cars, okay. either through crashes, mm. through circumstances around this industrial place. They actually died in those cars. They're they're brought back from the death, from dead, from being dead. And where did you get that idea? Because I love the doubles, like the the two, you know, the, the two, two ladies dancing. There's two sets of two ladies, or are they actually two men dressed as ladies? But I love that, and yeah. I love that. I I love. I just love that idea. I don't know how you came up with that idea. I love the bit where, um, in one shot, just the the arm. You just see the bit of the arm kind of um, move out. Oh, exactly. Of the yeah, yeah. So, so how did you, I mean, how did you decide um, I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to have two ladies dancing like this and they're going to be dressed the same and I'm going to have them, you know, like in the car and I'm going to, you know, how, how how do you get your ideas? Um, I, I worked with a very, very good uh, stylist at the time, mm. Roger Burton. Roger Burton is a major stylist in film, really. He has a great history in filmmaking. Uh, in this country, and he uh, he runs a place called the Horse Hospital or Contemporary Wardrobe. Mm. The horse hospitals where where physical events happen, i.e., art events happen. Where he has a Contemporary Wardrobe is a, a costume department from the, the Second World War onwards, mm. or the late forties onwards. Great. I mean, he worked with all the great artists. Great. Uh, I keep on going about Roger, mm. which is extraordinary. Uh, so he styled them, which was quite inspiring. And um, I mean, I, I came up with the, with all the concepts. Um, mm. Like a, there was a mother and daughter who was uh, burnt alive inside a caravan, a caravan, as you see in the film, don't you? Yeah. You're going this caravan in. Go on, sorry. Well, th that scene... Um... I, I like that scene when they're outside, the, the mother and daughter, and it reminds me of um, an album cover um, of the the Killers, one of their album covers, which would have come come after that video. So I'm wondering whether they were influenced by that video. I wonder I'm, what, what's that thing, Claire? Tell me about I'll it. Have to, um, but I can't think what the. I look up the killers. Yeah, anyway. the killers. Um, I like the killers. They um, there's an album cover, and it's got this woman outside this car um, outside this caravan. I'll um, I'll 
get the name of the 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 album it's gone from my head but that scene reminds me of that album cover so i wonder whether they were influenced by by you you know by that that video and of course the the um the car that's uh, suspended yeah it, 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 how how did how did you do that is that real was it sort of anim you know CGI? yeah it was on by a crane it was on by chains from a crane and then the chains were taken out obviously that was an expenditure you know <laughs> i bet you that was was that quite hard to get that to suspend and then you've got the the woman or the or the man Englishman um, who lived in la um to to be head of the art department actually i mean he had all the drawings you know to mm. all the drawings were sent over to la and uh we had enough time to do things properly um i said it was an extraordinary amount of money um and then we shot the the band in um, in new york after that uh, in a studio um small studio um uh yeah and he he's a man that woman's a man by the way that's you only see the back of her. She's got very long legs. Yeah, very I know. <laughs> she's very slim. Uh, she's a man. Yeah. Yeah, that it's such a great video. So, what was the length of time to make that? Then, how long did it from start well, to? Um, are you? I, I haven't told you one other thing. It, it was used by very famous cinematographer who I continued to work with after that on commercials. Mm. Uh, he was called Eric Edwards. He's a, a very famous cinema cinematographer. Yeah. Uh, I, I think he shot My Own Private Idaho with River Phoenix. River Phoenix, River. yeah. Um, Gus Van Sant's film, was it? Yeah. I th was it? I yeah. Think it did. I think he did. If you look up Eric Edwards, I'm sorry okay. I can't think of his uh, filmography at the moment, but he, he's a very famous. And I really enjoyed working with him. Yeah. Um, we shot a lot of stuff night for day, okay. uh, or day for night, excuse me, day for night, <laughs> where it looks like nighttime, but it's daytime. I wanted the whole film to look like it was shot, uh, you know, like they used to shoot the westerns with John Ford westerns and, oh. and uh, you know what I mean? And it, How did they do that? With Do they use it, do, is it filters? It's a filter and stuff. And, uh, I mean, you know, when you get like heavy sunlight and it looks like moonlight and that, you mm -hmm. know, I just love all that. Uh, there are certain sequences that really bring that out into the open. I mean, the end of it is very much that way. Um, those two guys, those laughing guys, uh, the end of the yeah. film, cars all broken up and they, they, they're dead, you know what I mean? They, they crash that car and they're dead, you know? Um, but... Yeah, that was quite a film. It would take me, I'd go to LA, of course, and it would probably take me, what, three weeks, I suppose, altogether. Um, maybe four days shooting, maybe three or four days of casting directors and all that stuff, uh, looking for the location. That would have been two to three weeks' work, mm. including editing. And then how did the band respond when they first saw it? Badly. No, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, not the band. In, I mean, the head of the record company, who was my friend, actually, my mm. old friend, wouldn't allow it. In its, I mean, to be quite honest, it was edited to be more palatable, can we say. Okay. But it's really quite a heavy, a heavy video. I don't have all the outtakes now, unfortunately. Um, it was quite a film.
So, mm-hmm. so you had to sort of reduce, not reduce it, but yeah, sort of. I had to, yeah. Tweak it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And how did the band then respond to the tweaked version? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> They're so into a lot of their films. I mean, the fans want to. I really want to to know about it. They love it. They think it's the best video that Beige Mode ever I, had. But I think it's a really great video, and it's really quite cinematic as well. And um, yeah, with your with your vision, um, so I would agree with them. Um, what was that shot on, Brian? Interesting that question. Actually, it would have been shot on film, of course. Mm. I think I don't think it was sixteen mil. I think it was 35 mil as well. I'm not certain. Uh, I think because we had plenty of money, I think it was probably shot in 35 mil film. Uh, I was going to ask you that. Did you shoot mostly on 35 mil or did you do any 16 millimeter? Was that like The Life of Brian? Was that 16 millimeter? Oh, yeah. That was a student film back mm-hmm. in, the in the eight by um, Life of Brian was shot by uh, a guy studying film from Venezuela. Um, we studied film. He was in a film school in in uh, central London, actually, um, in Common Garden. I can't remember what the film school was then. Um, but he was a he was a Venezuelan young man, you know. Mm. And I did I'd done a book called um, uh, my first book, Copyright 1978, and I had my photographic studio down in Rotherhithe, 1980. And um, he came down to Rotherhithe to shoot the film. Mm. And uh, the man in the film, Martin Cropper, appears in my book, uh, Copyright 1978. He was a, a model, well, model, a normal man, who I thought the look of him was fantastic, um, that, that I used in my work, you know, in, in, in my book. And in, um, he just lent himself to, to be photographed by me, which was very kind of him. Mm. And then he lent himself to appear in this film, mm. which is very good in, actually. Yeah, he plays the sequence, the dance sequence, but he plays also the performance, the performance I thought of doing, you know, where I'm in an office, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I say throw a circle, you know. Uh, yeah, it was one of my little things, my little teachers. <laughs> What, what uh, film stock wise, um, do you like both 35 mil and 16 millimeter, or do you prefer 35 millimeter, Brian? What would your choice be? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think I was overtaken by quality, really, when it comes to 35 millimeter. Yeah. Uh, I shot stuff on 16 millimeter, certainly yeah. after that. In fact, with Eric Edwards, because uh, I used to do big car videos and stuff, not videos, shoots, commercials. Yeah. And I know I've shot on digital, shot on uh, on 16 millimeter, which I did it um, in South Africa. I did a commercial for um, for for some reason. I used to get the uh, what what was the car Toyota? Was it Toyota? Toyota, yeah. I drive. What? <laughs> you drive one of those. I drive a Yaris, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember what the car <laughs> Japanese manufacturer. I did two commercials for them, and um, yeah, and we used to use with the last one I did. We used to use sixteen millimeter and yeah. digital and a mixture of things. Um, so no, I'm not particularly proud of you know the quality of the film at all. 
what made you um so you know you stepped away from um photography in, in sort of 1991 till 2002 what made you step away then from films to go back to photography uh, because i wasn't being accepted actually in uh, the world of film um they didn't I, I wasn't getting commercials to do people didn't mm. really want my my vision you know people didn't want the way I did things or whatever they yeah. desired so yeah. I was no work really no work at all so I went back to photography and left film again but it was a, a gradual process actually um, uh, my, 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 my production company uh, decided that they would rather not have me around because although I was taking 50% of all the profits, whatever, uh, I had a partner and mm -hmm. uh, and they thought, well, I'm not getting any work, which I wasn't. They weren't giving me any work, any of these uh, production, uh, sorry, these uh, uh, advertising agencies. And I was creaming off all the profit, well, off the profits. And they thought, well, we're working a lot and he's getting paid for sitting in the office, actually. Mm -hmm. Thing. and so they they decided to get rid of me you know bunch together and get rid of me and then um i went as a freelance with other production companies and i i got some work i mean i did uh i did the depeche mode for instance video as a I went as an individual out instead mm -hmm. of my own company and uh, a lot of other commercials as well, like the the big car commercial in South Africa I just mentioned, and a few other things. But eventually it, it dried up, so I decided to jump ship back into photography mm. because I was recognised as being one of the best commercial photographers. And um, and but before I did that, I wrote a movie. Okay. I wanted to be a big movie director, <laughs> uh, which is a bit of a laugh now. We're called Blue Town. Uh, what the movie that you you wrote was wrote called movie. Yeah. And um and and I had a producer who was interested in that. Mm. He offered me he'd find me a, a million pounds to make the film, and I thought that's far too little. I'm not interested, which yeah. I regret heavily now. Mm. Uh, it was a movie. That took place on the Isle of Sheppey, which is, as you know, south of London, and uh, it's called Blue Town, which is a part of Sheppey. Uh, and it's about um, a, 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 a mind control, um, American mind control um, uh, base. Yeah. Sitting on the Isle of Sheppey. Yeah. Where characters, <laughs> I tell you, characters, I don't know, this is going back 20 years. Characters are um, members of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show because Buffalo Bill anchored off the Isle of Sheppey uh, down that way um, when he visited uh, England, not on one occasion, on the first occasion, mm. in, the, in, in the 1880s, I think it was. And, um, that, yeah, I mean, it's a really strange film. <laughs> no, uh, I mean, a million pounds was wonderful to is there any possibility, Brian, that could become a reality? <laughs> to resurrect it? No, I don't. I've could made it, it now, but then it wasn't a reality. Couldn't we? Couldn't we? Can that be your next kind of Kickstarter or go round? Because <laughs> honestly, it's it's a shame, isn't it? And I know before the we began recording, I was saying that I, you know, I I really like your work, and um, I think you've got a very singular, unique. 
vision, Griffin vision, <laughs> in both your films and your your still work, and it's mm -hmm. I think it's just wonderfully surreal. And um, it's a and I was going to ask you, um, and you've sort of answered it really. Is as much as that's sort of got you kind of recognised and made you successful, in sometimes it's become a, a barrier for you because sometimes people like to play it safe. It sounds in in, in film world, in the film world, um, and and that's really a real shame. And and like I said to you, I've I've read that people like David Lynch struggle to get films funded because. Um, they're not going to be a, a big kind of um, James Bond blockbuster, and, and it's a it's a real a real shame. Um, but I think that should be your next mission. <laughs> <laughs> I spent almost two years writing that. Uh, yeah, see. Writing that movie. See, I've still got the script actually. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe you should revisit that script and see. I've got it on. Uh, I've got it on uh, a file, a digital file as well, which is good. Um, see if you still like your script now. If you 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 you'd tweak it. Um, and no, I think that sh that could be a that could be a mission. Yeah. Do you yeah, miss anything, Phil? How could I possibly raise it? Maybe hundreds of thousands of pounds. I can raise uh, thirty or forty, but hundreds of thousands of pounds on Kickstarter. There you Maybe. go, listeners. We need we need some support here. How can we get <laughs> new town? Do, yeah. <laughs> a reality? Um, do you miss uh, making films, Brian? Or do you still make them? Uh, I don't know. Do you still make any? Um, I, the last one I made was The Water People, um, which was two thousand and five or something. Mm -hmm six maybe six mm. um i uh i haven't made anything and i it sort of left me with a bad it's left me with a bad taste i don't go and watch movies really and i don't watch them on television either although i liked tarantino's last movie yeah um the hollywood one you know once upon a time in hollywood I thought because i'd stayed in in that house you know where they were were, were staying Mm. I stayed in the house in the Hollywood Hills not that long ago, maybe seven or eight years ago. I stayed in that house and um, I thought that was a, it appealed to me. Mm. It was fantastic. It just appealed to me purely. Fantastic film. Everybody, you know, if, if something's fantastic, I won't be taken away from it. That I feel is fantastic. That's it. Yeah. I don't care what other people say about things. I just accept it. Uh, I think he's a great director. Well, certainly that movie is mm. amazing. Um, and and also, what is the the other guy in it? Oh, the most famous American actor that women love. Oh God! Oh, Brad was Brad Brad Pitt. Yeah, he uh, played a great part. Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, like two actors that you think are going to be crap, and they were brilliant. Uh, I, I shouldn't say crap because they're too mainstream. Maybe mm. I felt, you know, but they're really brilliant at it. But we need Blue Town, I think, Brian. <laughs> you are. <laughs> I want that. If you could produce it. You'd probably be. Yeah, really cool. I'm gonna. I'm going to. I'm. We'll have to pull all the stops out to make that happen. So you've moved back into photography, um, and obviously you've got your book coming out as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to tell, tell listeners um, when that is actually coming out and where they could get the book and a bit about the book that's coming out, Brian? Yeah, of course. I, I, I'm delighted to tell you about it because, again, it's one of my major projects, you know, and uh, it's taken – what happened was that it began in the 
at the beginning of lockdown, which mm. back in March uh, last year, that is. And I, I sat down and I thought, well, I'm not going to waste my time during lockdown, like burying my head in the sand or getting bored. I'm going to really do something. Again, it was it was um, made in emotion in an emotional time for me because my daughter was not terribly well then, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and is no longer with us. I just like to say, mm -hmm. so with all through that period, and it's dedicated to her and uh, all the people that have uh, that have put the money into it, i.e., the, the pledges that paid the thirty-five pounds. Yeah etc at the same time are in the back of the book they've all got their name in it all the people that uh, made the pledge and the incredible thing was that i decided to make all my work the, the, the prints i gave away yes really cheap yeah i just had to make the book the book had to be made it could not be uh, not made so i made all all, all my a lot of my best work of mm -hmm. over that period by the way this is about the 60s sorry the, into the 70s and the 80s so it's, it's photographs of that period analog photography it's all about analog my book mm. and uh, I, I made it so cheap because i had to get the raise the money yeah. i need to raise um 30 odd thousand pounds and then my, my great old friend, Martin Parr, phoned me up. He's a very famous photographer. Yeah. He said, no chance. You're not going to have a chance in hell. It's during lockdown. But I, I stuck with it and I fought it. And then I had a great designer. It's a young girl, actually. 24-year-old young girl designed my book up in the cafetiere in, mm. uh, in Sheffield. Uh, the cafeteria, sorry, cafeteria in Sheffield. She designed it. And a, a, a woman was my editor who worked in the same company called Catherine Carley. I mean, she uh, shaped the book. You know, she told me I needed more here or less there. Yeah. I needed more there. So I had an editor as well. The company, Cafeteria, supplied me with, I mean, she's the managing director anyway. Um, <laughs> and um, it's all made in Britain, this book. It's printed in Britain and designed in Britain. So it's a total British works mm. on British people work in a way, in a, in a very, very small way. I'm not Rolls-Royce, by the way, with jet in. It's just a little book. It's um, a book of 750 copies, um, and that's it. So, And I, I can tell you now, 400 have sold already. So if you I'm want... Down, book, I, I'm down for one of them, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, book, uh, the book is a hardback. It's a hardback book called The Black Country Dada. Mm. Uh, Black Country Dada, 1969 to 1990. Uh, it's called Dada because of the Dada movement, which I, I yeah. see myself as a Dadaist in a way. And my daughter saw me as a Dadaist. So she used to call me Dada instead of Dad. It's quite interesting. That's lovely. Um, and, uh, yeah, and um, it's... Uh, you can get it on my website, which is briangriffin.co.uk. It's got a shop on there. Mm. Um, it's it's quite, I don't know if you find a lot of money. It's a hardback book. There's only 750 copies going to be in the world. So if you're into book investment, it's probably a good investment to yeah. have. Um, I mean, I've, I've 
Yeah. ordered a copy and I've gone for the prints of um, Rush Hour London Bridge. I think it's really great. Um, it's, a, it's one of my masterpieces. Yeah, so. um, and I love like Traffic Island, you know, all those images. Oh, that's, um, a, that's another great one. Yes. Yeah, and Rocket Man. I love them all, Brian. One of my favourites of yours, and what's the title of it, is the four gentlemen coming out of the elevators. What's that? Oh, What's right. The... Bureaucracy. Bureaucracy, that's it. Oh, I love that's that shot. That's based... Women love that shot, you know. Another very beautiful woman like you. <laughs> um, she loves that shot, a good friend of mine. And uh, she's got hair like your hair, by oh, the way. Oh, has she? Yeah, bureaucracy. Because it's based upon the fact that uh, uh, it, it's Franz Kafka. It's very Kafka. Mm. And he was one of my inspirations at the beginning of my career, really, was when I went to art college and came out of art college, mm. I was desperate. I had to find a style, which fortunately I found one. And it, it took both literature and painting and, and history of movies yeah. all combined to find my style, really. So it's very appropriate that we're talking on this, on this occasion about movies because do you want me to talk about the inspirations of those? Yeah, I, definitely, because I, I really love that body of work. And, you know, I, I, I can't imagine anybody who could go into um, business, you know, uh, film, uh, photograph workers and just make them make those images look so artistic and, and creative. And um, but that shot, bureaucracy, I, I love it. I love it, Brian. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, inspirations. Yeah, we'd love to it's in the hear. book as well, of course. Yeah, it's in the book, uh, Bureaucracy, the one you said. Mm. Uh, inspirations behind the photography or inspirations behind film and photography. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you like that, yeah? yeah. Okay. Well, um, I mean, my, 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 uh, what happened was I left our college in 1972. Mm -hmm. I went to our college in 69, three years. I was a mature student, really. I was um, I was twenty one when I went to art college, and um, yeah, when I came out, uh, I thought I was very good uh, in a way, but mm. I had not that much confidence. But I, uh, I, I, my work was very similar to everybody else's, apart from isolated in isolated cases. I got to find my style, so I, I, I spent a long time when I wasn't getting any work and I was like walking the streets to get a get an employment and get a mm -hmm. job. Never an assistant. I got a job straight away but uh in four after four months walking the streets. But anyway, um I uh sat in the BFI and I sat through the French cinema. Mm. I sat through the uh the German cinema and the first cinema I really alighted to was the silent cinema of the Expressionist period, mm, mm. which is quite obvious because I grew up in an area which was very polluted, black country, and all the steelworks and the men with their shirts and so their singlets, whatever, which yeah. are like, you know, sleeveless uh, vest, uh, putting the steel, putting the steel through the rolling mills. Mm. The sky was all lit, and all the light I remember so well as a, as a boy growing up in that area was very expressionistic, uh, as used in expressionist film. Mm. And I, I, read, I had a book as my Bible called Lottie Eisner, The Haunted Screen, was my Bible. Mm. 
And um, that really formed my early career. And the picture that you say you like, because London Bridge is obviously Metropolis by King, yeah. by uh, Lang. Yeah. And um, so I, 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 I really absorbed that and adored that. But I also like the surrealist cinema of the French, the French cinema, mm. which uh, I particularly liked uh, René Clair and, um, and Marcel Carnet. Uh, I made a few notes here. Um, can you still see me okay, yeah? I see you perfect, yeah. Oh, good, because uh, I, I, I've actually had to make this up, because of my age, I have to ensure I don't forget. <laughs> I've been told by a friend of mine that I've got to make notes, and, like, I, I, obviously, um, if, we, if I just read this paragraph, mm. which is very, very important, why I um, gravitated towards... Uh, the expressionist cinema mm. um and uh I put my glasses on <laughs> um as the as the name suggests german expressionism filmmakers used visual distortion and hyper expressive performances to show inner turmoils mm. Like, obviously, I, I really got me that did. Yeah. I realised that with all my pictures of the office, etc., you know, I had to externalise feelings, really, by using the body and the way the body expressed itself, the body movement, uh, reflect the inner conflicts, so and the desires of that era. German Expressionism reflects the inner conflicts of the 1920s German audience by giving their woes an inescapable external presence by rejecting cinematic realism, expressionist films showcased dramatic revolutionary mm. interpretations of the human condition. And I, I really, really gravitated towards that, and it helped to formulate my 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 way of photographing. And then I, I went on to to other things. Um, I went on. I mean, I really enjoyed uh, a film called Les Enfants du Paradis by mm. Marcel Carnet. I one particular bit of that film that really impressed me was the fact that Marcel Carnet would go into an interior space mm -hmm. and stretch a gauze, a material gauze that you could see through, like a almost like a, a woman's nylons in a way, but it yes. was a gauze that that put uh, that you could see what was beyond. Yeah. Across across the whole wall uh, the ground and the, to the walls, mm -hmm. all stapled around the end of the uh, end of the room. So it like made the end of the room like a like a, an apparition, like a dream, mm. but the front mm. of the room is very solid and very. The actors in the in the front of the room were very solid and, and realistic, but the actors in the back of the room were very much like dreamlike. And I, I took a took real notes of that. And um, my favorite—I haven't spoken much about the modern period apart from Tarantino, but one film that remains in my head from the French cinema. Yeah. More of a modern uh, film. It was made in the sixties with, with Alan Delon in uh, the Samurai. I love that. I love that that film. It's such a surrealist film by Jean Pierre Melville. 
Yeah. I've actually stolen a little bit of that in some of my pictures mm. in this century where I use white gloves, where I use white gloves on people, just white normal gloves. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, like Alan Delon wore those white gloves before mm. he assassinated somebody. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Um, so if you if if you if you uh, do a portrait and get someone to wear your gloves, <laughs> <laughs> a film that left a lasting impression mm. on me was by uh, who I think is a great surrealist uh, filmmaker, a Frenchman. That I, I don't gravitate necessarily towards the obvious, which was a good, well one, which is large door or, or chandelier. Uh, mm. Chandelier is in my French. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I don't go for the obvious, you know, slicing through the eye and all that. I go for more for René Clair and his film Paris Asleep, which was uh, shot in 1925, where a scientist was on top of the Eiffel Tower, up in the Eiffel Tower, and mm. he turns like a, a set of fingers I can remember I haven't seen it for years set mm. of fingers. and he stops everything in Paris he stops time in Paris so a policeman is running you know down the street yeah. blowing his whistle he's frozen everything in Paris is frozen so everything he, which obviously inspired my um, my endless you know it inspired yes. him yeah. in later yeah. years when I yeah. Will Poen um you know, Ilpo and Mika get frozen, and they, this it was frozen. Um, and then the last film also is uh, by Marcel. Uh, sorry, excuse me, Rennie Claire is on tracked, on tracked with a, a track by um, Eric Satay. Mm -hmm. It's a fantastic surrealist film where where a, it's at a not a burial. It's at a um, at a, uh, 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 um, um, a service for, for someone who's died is in his coffin, you know. Yeah. The coffin escapes, yeah. comes yeah. down the steps, you, I don't know if you know it, and it runs down the street. And there's all these camera and all these people running after the coffin, which is on its own, running down a, mm. a winding street. And it, it hits a wall, the coffin hits, I think he hits a wall and it dives into a field. Mm. And all the people gather around it and, and, and the man becomes alive again. You know, he, he rises out of the coffin and becomes alive again. Um, that's on tracked by, uh, again, mm. um, Rene Claire, who I think is the great serious filmmaker. But I have enjoyed a lot of films uh, since then. I've enjoyed the, the, um, the cinema of, uh, of Georgia. We, I mean, a lot of their painting is in is very naive. Their painting they, seems to be the majority of it in the olden days. Mm. Very naive, and um, I, I love the painter Pyrrhus Marne. Okay, Pyrrhus Marne is a the great Georgian painter, and I love the film by Georgia Shengalia, who made a film called Pyrrhus Marne mm. uh, in a naive style. Are you, influenced, are you influenced by any of the surrealist painters, um, Brian, like Max Ernst or Leonora Carrington, or, or, or not so much? Leonora was his wife, of course, uh, yeah. Max Ernst. And, but Max Ernst and also, uh, obviously, Ray McGree in the early part of my career, definitely. Um, and uh, uh, Max Ernst and Man Ray, not right. as a painter, 
Ray as a sculptor. Yeah. I've always wanted to beat Man Ray uh, <laughs> in my photography, as my in my sculptures, etc. I've, I've always wanted to be better than him. He was my yardstick in terms of photographic mm -hmm. history. In terms of photographic history, in modern photographic history, it was the Americans, Irving Penn and uh, and uh, Richard Avedon, who kept on turning out day after day after day. Yeah. I mean, they've got masses of work like they've got because I work like they did, did a load yeah. of work. Yeah. Um, and produced a lot of work, you know, and got good at, good at it because I produced a lot. You get better at it. Mm. Um, anyway. Sorry. It's funny, no, it's funny just hearing you um, speak about your kind of influences and when you were saying about the, the expressionist cinema and how you that the what you read out earlier how about you know it, putting feeling into your work and stuff um through the body movements there's an, there's another it's just it, when you were speaking one of your images really flew into my head and again i think it's from uh, one of your like um businessmen um and he's coming out of a and he's like in there's just him in the room and it's like he's coming out of a doorway almost like a corridor doorway and he's got his hand sorry for listeners i'm sort of showing my hand against a wall and he's coming through and he's looking i don't know i wish i knew what the the image was called brian he's coming out of like the gap there's like a gap at the back doorway gap down a corridor and it's quite a powerful powerful image i wish i knew which one i have to let you know when when you were speaking that that's what's that's what sprung into my i'd be interested to know it yeah famous one and I can't think of what it could be but it could I like could be something dormant in my memory <laughs> <laughs> you know somehow but I mean people can buy my book from my website you got in the shop yeah. you know and, uh, and it's uh, a page book and it's uh, I've written it myself by the way with the guidance of Catherine Carley at the, the, the cafeteria um, the cafeteria uh, they're pushing me, pushing me, mm. you know. I mean, a photographer to write a 200-page book is like crazy. It's got tons of photographs in, some of them which you've mentioned uh, this evening, forward. Catherine. You know, excuse me. Uh, oh <laughs> excuse me. That's all right. You can I'm, <laughs> name. I'm sorry. Um, but, uh, I mean, as you said, you bought it, and there's going to be all those photographs you yeah. love. And, and and your stories because you've got so many stories so i'm I'm really looking forward to, to getting that book and 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 reading it and i think yeah for listeners um i would say get your copy quick because i know one of your other books pop yeah um which well, looks a wonderful book you can't get it anymore can you can't get it it's 250 pounds or whatever it is 500 it's, i think there's yeah, one yeah. there's one copy i think that's 500 pounds um it's kind of um especially but it's you know it, it's obviously it came and it's gone and it, it looks like a wonderful book pop you pop know is, uh, just wonderful book everyone should have pop we've only <laughs> 1250 copies uh, we only have 750 of these because, um, and of course, they cost so much each copy to, to make if you make only 750. Yeah. Once you get in the thousands, it becomes nothing, you know. Mm. Uh, excuse me, Claire, for getting your name wrong. I'm sorry. Oh, don't worry. Um, no, so we've got your book. So are you, what's next for you, Brian? Or are you, <laughs> you taking a breather and then <laughs> are you all ready? <laughs> take a breather. Uh, I'm Blue really Town. We want Blue Town definitely now.
I mean, this is a really interesting talk. I think you've developed a very interesting talk, um, something I've never done before, because no one's ever interested in my films. Oh, I You're think it's wonderful. And I would, I would encourage all um, listeners to go and have a look at, um, have a look at them, because they're on your website, aren't they? And you're, they're on your YouTube tra uh, channel, Brian. On my YouTube channel yeah. as well, on my website, yeah. But, and, uh, um, Claustrophobia. A very attractive woman and um, called Cornelia Field, and she worked worked for me actually. A very tall uh, woman that was born in Nigeria, mm. uh, of German parentage as well, so Nigerian and German. She uh, and I said, oh, "What should I do? Uh, oh, should I call the film?" And she said, "Claustrophobia, claustrophobia." Oh, it's great. Foam. <laughs> oh, it's great. Which I do. I love foam. I use foam a lot these days in my work. You know, in my recent work, I use a lot of liquids, uh, a lot of foam and liquids and different substances. It's really. So that's uh, taking you in. A, is this a new direction? Is this to what get textures? And... Few years. Of, the last five years, I use all that gooey things, you know, like I make slime and stuff. Oh, well, right, slime. slime and, that oh. children make. Um, mm, I know, yeah. Well, Brian, what can I say? It's been lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time and uh, all your wonderful insights and your, and your stories. Thank and, you. Uh, hopefully, um, you know, your book, I'm sure, will, will sell out and uh, hopefully we will get our Blue Town Film. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe someone will be interested in me now. You'll make me <laughs> famous as a film director. Uh, so, do you want to tell listeners um, actually uh, where they can go to see um, see your work, um, your photographic work, and your and your films? Yeah, um, if, if this program is is swift enough, I can ask you to go to Islington. If you look on all the social networks in the next couple of weeks. Mm. There's a there's a show which Claire mentioned earlier of my book Pop. Yeah. Some uh, some of it uh, the, on the walls framed, which of course you can purchase as well. <laughs> and uh, there's a off the off the exhibition is my new book, uh, A Black Kingdom. Mm -hmm. The exhibition is in Islington in a place called Islington Square, which you can see all the details on on everything Facebook, LinkedIn. Twitter. Uh, we can Instagram. put some links as well. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. We can put some links as well. And I and I and I'll put put that on. Um, it'll be go on tomorrow. It's on from the uh, Friday the sixteenth of um, Friday the sixteenth of uh, April uh, and until um, Sunday the second of May. Mm, fantastic. It may go on longer if it's very successful. If it's if it's successful and if it's desired, then it'll stay on longer. Um, but yeah, that's my next thing. So because what I've, I've been very crafty actually, because we come out of lockdown, yeah, mm. twelfth, and then the galleries are still locked down. But I go into a shop. It's a two thousand square foot shop. Fantastic. With, all the pop projected on the wall and all anyway it's a massive big gallery and i can do that because it's a shop and it's not a gallery so i shall have an exhibition in london from 
April the 16th onwards. So please come up to Islington. Fantastic. Up uh, Upper Street in London. Yeah. Um, I think I'll if I can get if I can get there for the lockdown rules allow I'll I'll come myself Brian and uh, have, have a look yeah yeah I will incredible you're going to come all over there yeah yeah it's a long way on that train you know either. oh no it's quite no, not bad you know not bad five hours <laughs> by car isn't it uh, oh by car no, I'd come on the train quick quite quick through Brian so. Yeah, don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> so no, so so thank you, thank you, Brian, for 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 your time, and I hope listeners will um, not just get your book; they'll come along to the exhibition as well. I hope they do. I'd love to see them. <laughs> I'm going to be there every day. You can oh, see fantastic. me. There you go, listeners. See, Brian is going to be there every day. So and I'll sign a book for you if you buy a book mm, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> As always, if you'd like to get in touch, please email sunny16presents at gmail.com and head up your email on film. And we look forward to you joining us again next month. Mm-hmm.